not by our might, not by our power. If I stand before the Lord, may it be by his spirit. If I stand before the Lord, let it be in awe of him. Lord, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for making your presence known. Lord, help us to walk and live each and every day by the words that we sang this morning. Let us be always be in awe of you. For you are great in power, you are great in mercy, you are great in love. And as much as we tried to describe you, you are yet still indescribable. Lord, let us dwell in your house. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Happy Sunday. Welcome to Emmanuel Church. My name is Joel Porter. I am one of the elders here at Emmanuel and uh, one of the worship leaders. Um, and it's a joy to stand before you this morning and bring you God's word and uh, share with you a little bit of what the Lord has been kind of convicting me in my spirit over the last several months. And uh, I pray that it is good. I pray that it ministers to your heart the way it has mine. Um, so the title of this sermon is Worshiping in Spirit and Truth. There's a couple key verses uh, that are the focal point for this morning, the first being John 4.24. I'll read it, and then, then we'll, we'll, we'll skip to our Bibles and, and kind of read it more in context. But John 4.24 says, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Romans 12.1, like this one too. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Just a little bit of pretext before we get to the real text. Thank you. I'm here all week. Don't forget to tip your waiters and waitresses. Um... An act of worship, so often we, we sometimes forget that an act of worship is everything that we do. It is not just the time on Sunday morning that the worship team leads us into an attitude of worship, into a posture of worship through song, but our acts of worship include gathering in the Welcome Center before we come into this room. Our acts of worship are the time we spend in prayer corporately and personally. Our acts of worship are reading God's word and listening to 
a message. Our acts of worship include everything that happens from 11.15 on Sunday morning through 9.45 next Sunday morning. Let everything your hand finds to do. (laughs) Do it as unto the Lord. Paul says that, and and one of my favorite verses is in Ecclesiastes. It's Ecclesiastes 9.10. It's one of those things that I think about almost every day, and and it convicts me almost every day, and that is whatever um, your hand finds to do, do to the best of your abilities. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might, it says. For in the grave where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. That whole passage of Ecclesiastes 9 could be its own sermon, but we'll save that for another day. Pastor Dan, take note. Save that one for another day. Remind me the next time, hey, you said you were going to preach on this. I think I actually said that the last time I preached. Hey, I'm going to preach on this next time, and I didn't. Um, But that's okay. So let's look at John 4.24 in its full context. If you have your pew Bible, uh, go to page 1053. Give you a minute to get there. You're going to get a Joel minute to get there, so not full 60 seconds, but basically until I'm done saying this sentence right now. There we go. All right, everybody there? All right, look at me awkwardly if you're there, or give a hand wave. Okay, I saw some awkwardness. That's good. Awesome. We're all here. Um, we're, we're actually picking up this verse, John 4, 24, at the tail end of a conversation that Jesus himself had with the Samaritan woman at the well. To, un- to fully unpack what Jesus is saying here, we do need to back it up to verse 20, because it's important, and it's God's word, therefore it's good. Starting at verse 20, it says, Our fathers worshipped on the mountain. This is the Samaritan woman talking. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. See, what I love about this passage is that it's not just telling us an instruction that you are to worship in spirit and truth, but it is actually telling us what the heart of the Father is and that he wants us to worship in spirit and truth. That is what he's expecting. They're the kind of worshipers God the Father is seeking. So sometimes that kind of flips our ideas of worship and ideas of of how we go about our lives a a little bit upside down because you're like, oh, wait. The Bible tells us a whole lot about how we're supposed to handle ourselves, how we're supposed to act, how we're supposed to view God. But here we actually see this is what the Father is seeking. 
It's more than just an expectation. Yes, there's an expectation, but it's what he's seeking from us. As Christians, do we not want to do what God wants us to do? <laughs> Let us be the worshipers that God seeks. Uh, the woman here brought up a popular theological issue of the time, the correct place to worship. But her question was a smokescreen to keep Jesus away from her deepest need. To learn more about that, give the whole of chapter 4 a read. Jesus, however, redirected that conversation to a much more important point. The location of worship is not nearly as important as the attitude of the worshipers. Our posture in worship, the intentions of our hearts in worship are just as, if not more, important. Now, the location of our worship on Sunday mornings is important because it also says not to forsake the gathering of believers. But it's also bringing up that interesting point that Paul reiterates many times in his messages to pray unceasingly, to worship the Lord at all times. That is more important than just the location because the location ever changes. The fact that we are to be worshiping him never changes. So wherever we are, we worship in spirit and truth because that is what he is seeking. Now, it also says God is spirit in this passage. It means that he's not a physical being limited to one space. He is present everywhere and can be worshipped anywhere at any time, as I just said. It's not where we worship that counts, but how we worship. Is your worship genuine and true? This is what we're going to be focusing on this morning, and we're going to look at a couple of worship services and acts of worship in both the Old and New Testaments that kind of bring this to life and, and gives us instructions of, of how we are supposed to enter into those times of worship. In case you haven't noticed, worship, worship is something that's very near and dear to my heart. And by the conviction of the Spirit, the desire he's planted in my heart is to do it right. Uh, let's look at Romans 12.1 as well. That's on a page uh, 1,123, or 1123. Um, as you're flipping there, it's only 70 pages ahead, so... <laughs> hey, that was some pretty good mental math for Sunday morning. Hey, thank you. Um, usually I reserve the really good mental math for at least Tuesday. But as you're flipping there, um, once again, kind of to bring clarity to this verse, we need to roll back that verse number, uh, that verse counter to actually chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Here's a freebie um, that actually has uh, not as much to do with this sermon, but this is just a good old Bible reading pro tip. Who here likes pro tips? I love learning pro tips. Makes me feel like a pro when I learn them. Our modern Bible transcribers like to group together themes into chapters and sections within those chapters to increase readability. But that isn't always how Paul wrote his letters. 
often you may see a chapter or a section of, of text or a paragraph or even just a standalone verse that starts with the word therefore or so then or rather. When you see this, you're about to read an effect or the result of another statement. You got to go back a few verses whenever you see Paul say, therefore, so then, or rather, because you got to understand the cause that led to that effect. You got to understand the context or the message or the passage that led to the therefore. I can't just walk into a room and the first thing I say is, therefore. You're going to be like, what? Where did we come from? How did we get here? Where'd you come from? Where'd you go? Where'd you come from, Kai and I, Joe? Ay, ay, ay. All right, verse 33. Everybody there? Excellent. All right. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Paul goes on to say in verse 2, because we're not done yet, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. My will is flawed. Joel's will, no good. God's will, infinitely better. When we think about sacrifice, and it says in, 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 verse, uh, in, in chapter 4, verse 1, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Um, at first glance, that can seem just a little, hmm, that escalated quickly. But let's think about it um, according to God's law. When sacrificing an animal, a priest would kill that man, animal, uh, cut it into pieces as outlined by the Lord, and place it on the altar. Sacrifice was important, but even in that Old Testament, uh, in those Old Testament times, God made it clear that obedience from the heart was much more important. God wants us to offer ourselves, not animals, as living Living, living sacrifices. Daily laying aside our own desires to follow him, putting all our energy and resources at his disposal and trusting him to guide us. We do this out of obedience because our Lord is God and he commanded it. First and foremost, our acts of obedience are because the Lord is God. He commanded it. We do this out of awe of his sheer magnitude, as we sang this morning. We do this because of his all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful nature. And we do this out of gratitude that our sins have been forgiven through Christ's work on the cross. Those are the reasons why we praise. These are the reasons why we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, because he 
has done, is doing, and will do all that we can't. And that's everything. I think we, and by we, I mean really the Western church in particular, but I'm talking about the big church, big C church here. We find it really easy to worship in the spirit. If I could be so bold as to say, we freaking love the spirit. We yearn to bask in God's glory during our times of musical worship. Speaking myself here, when his presence is so sweet that we can almost taste it. We find it easy to fall into an idolization of the experience of spirit-filled worship. I'm probably going to get some hate mail for that one, but hear me out. We forget that worship is first and foremost, as we've read, supposed to be a sacrifice. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. We can think about that for a minute and say, all right, what is a sacrifice of praise? Well, it's coming to church on Sunday morning and worshiping when you just don't feel like it. It's putting together a song list on, uh, you know, Monday or Tuesday evening when you've had a long day at work and you're just so tired. Um, I'm going to share with you uh, uh, briefly. Uh, several years ago, Amanda and I were out at, um, at, at IHOP in Kansas City. City that's the International House of Prayer. And uh, annually, they did a, a big conference, praise and worship, prophetic word ministry um, in uh, between Christmas and New Year's, and they had breakout sessions, and of course, I went to every single one that had to do with leading worship and just doing worship. And one of the questions was asked, and it, said, and it was, and this was to the worship leaders at the, at the house of worship, where there is 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, unceasing prayer and worship. And they asked, how do you do it? Because I'm human, you're human, there are times when I just don't feel like it, where I just need to sit on the couch and unwind and... There's no words to better describe. You know what feels like. And, and I'll never forget um, the words. I forget the person who said it. It was either Misty Edwards or it was... Um, Actually, I think it might have been. Um, but anyway, it was said, we do it because we're called to. And the calling on our lives doesn't care about whether or not we feel like it. The calling on our lives has everything to do with Jesus. It has everything to do with what God wants. It has everything to do with God's will. It has everything to do with furthering his kingdom as he has called us to. And then, and then she said, and I'll never forget, the sweetest times of worship have come during the times when I was simply obedient. When I wasn't feeling it. When I didn't think that the team was prepared and that we weren't going to gel, the Holy Spirit came in and did the trick. 
That's not to say that we go into these times unprepared. That's not to say that we're not going to prepare our hearts to uh, give to the Lord our sacrifice of praise. But I'm thankful that we have a God who is gracious. I'm going to actually coin a phrase that I learned from Mr. Ed Gibson probably about 10 years ago on the topic of doing finished carpentry. This is really good. Um, You know, sometimes you just can't rely on a wall to be 90 degrees. And yet we still have to put baseboard trim and crown molding through that corner. Thankfully, this is paint grade trim, not stain grade trim. So you do your best and caulk the rest. God does call us to do our best. And I'm thankful that by his grace, he can fill in those seams. With all that said, I think it, however, we find it much harder to worship in truth. Worshiping in truth means yielding our wants and desires to God's way, not our way. Worshiping in truth means making it all about him rather than all about us. Worshiping in truth means allowing conviction by the Holy Spirit of our sins and yielding of our unruly vines to the prune-shear-wielding gardener, our proverbial lump of clay to the potter, actually unclenching our fists that want to control our own lives and embracing God's better way. This means, this means allowing the Holy Spirit to transform us. That's what Paul said in Romans 12 too. We're just going to read that again. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, i.e., don't let this world guide you. Don't think about, well, this is the way I want to do it. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So we allow, we, in this time of worship, when we're worshiping in truth and we're saying, you know what, we're going to follow how his word says to do worship. We're going to follow his better way. Because that is going to, that's, that's what leads us on that path to sanctification. It is a path. It is a journey. By the grace of God and the working of the Holy Spirit, he transforms us. Sometimes when we repent of our sins, yeah, there have been testimonies where people have been transformed immediately. Praise God. For those of us who need to learn the lesson of patience, he does it over time. And he asks us to be fervent in our prayer. He asks us to be obedient. It is a lifelong journey. We'll actually talk about an example of that towards the end. 
But by allowing the Holy Spirit to transform us, he does so in the same way that Jesus began the sanctification process with the Samaritan woman at the well that we read about in John 4. She had to let go of something that was, ooh, I don't want to talk about that, but Jesus said, hey, we're going to talk about it because I have something better for you. I have something that will sustain you because what you've been holding on to clearly isn't because you keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, yet you're still not filled. Follow my better way. All right. There's a book um, that I'm going to reference here, and this is going to help paint, paint, you know, kind of give us a little bit of structure to the remainder of uh, the sermon here. And uh, do we have any motorcycle riders in, in the audience? Anybody? One? I know there's a couple, at least one, who is off getting their license uh, to ride a motorcycle today. Uh, so when they come back and listen to the sermon online, um, they'll be reminded to go pick up a book by a gentleman by the name of Keith Code. Um, he wrote a book called Twist of the Wrist. You can guess what it's all about. But it is a book all about performance motorcycle riding. And he gives a great analogy uh, about our attention and where we devote our attention and where we devote our thoughts. He says that everybody has precisely $10 worth of attention that they can pay at any given moment. That's it, $10. We could use $1, but $10, that's his analogy. And the point is, if you are spending, let's see, $5 on looking at the scenery, you only have $5 left to pay on the obstacles in the road ahead of you. There's only $5 left to pay on the oncoming car that's just a little bit too close to the double yellow line. There may be a hairpin turn coming up because you're on Route 82, and I love Route 82. There's a hairpin turn coming up. That turn actually requires $7 worth of your attention. If your $5 is spent elsewhere, you're now in a deficit. Deficits on motorcycles hurt really bad. Ask me how I know. The point is, the more you spend in different areas, the less you can devote to the main thing. In our times of worship, corporately here on Sunday mornings, or even individually when you're having your personal times at home in prayer or reading the Bible, you still only have $10 worth of attention to pay. So if you're spending a dollar on a misplaced comma that you see on the lyrics on the screen, how much do you have left to pay to the God who wants, is seeking, commands? You're 100%. God wants all your $10 of attention. Let's look at a couple worship services and acts of worship that fell short of the whole $10. You don't have to flip to your, um, you know, in your Bibles, just listen along. 
we're going to look at a couple of guiding principles that we should keep in mind when approaching our times of worship, whether they be, as I've mentioned, corporate, like when we're all together on Sunday mornings, or personal throughout the week. The first principle goes without saying, give God 100%. Why? Because God is worthy. For all the reasons that have already been mentioned this morning, for all the reasons that we already sang this morning, um, thank you, Derek, for your selection of songs. We did not talk about it beforehand. <laughs> but we're going to look to the first ever worship service. How far back are we going to go? We're going all the way back to just after the beginning, but nearly the beginning in Genesis 4. This is the very first recorded worship service. Genesis 4, verse 3. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. There's a lot that we can unpack from that, but ultimately what we need to think about is, well, what was it that caused these two brothers to give such a disparity in their sacrifices. Abel understood the assignment. God wanted some of his first fruits. He wanted the best of the best, the creme de la creme. Cain gave, presumably, out of his surplus, out of his extra. Perhaps he consumed for himself the uh, juicier tomatoes, and maybe gave the less appealing ones as a sacrifice. Whatever we deduce from it, we can deduce this. One of these two brothers was dealing with a sin of selfishness, while the other was looking to God and giving his full $10 in that moment. You can read on in that story um, after the whole, like, Cain killing his brother part of it. Um, when the Lord starts pursuing Cain afterwards, says, where is your brother? I don't know. I'm not my brother's keeper. Well, he was selfish with his time because he just wanted to pay attention to himself and what he was doing. And then God uh, confronts Cain with what he did and says, you are now, or now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Even in this moment, Cain was still thinking of himself, saying, my punishment is more than I can bear. If you send me out into this wilderness, I will surely die by the hands of others. Even in that selfishness, God in his grace still said, all right, I'll protect you. 
But let this not be a message of fear where I'm going to say, you know what, if you don't give your 100%, you're going to die. Um, but the point is, God is wanting our all. He's wanting our 100%. We can skip forward to another worship service that happens in Leviticus 10. It says, principle number two, honor God with worship that he wants. Here we see in Leviticus 10, 1 through 3, these are the sons of Aaron, uh, Nadab, and Abihu. After having been ordained as priests in the Levitical uh, command, and, and by the way, um, after that whole Cain and Abel in, uh, you know, incident when Moses was on the mountain, God gave him very, very detailed, this is how I want my house to look. This is how I want worship to take place. This is how you're going to organize it. This is the order that I want you to follow. There's still freedom within that order, as I've allowed, but there is still an order that I want you to follow. Well, Aaron's sons in chapter 10 took their censers, the things that they would normally burn incense in, and put fire in them and added incense and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So the fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Again, we're kind of looking at that and saying, Joel, this is another worship service that you're describing where somebody died. I don't want to die. That's not the point. The point I'm trying to make today is there is an order. There is a way that we, are going to be on, that we should be honoring to God in our worship. Um, worship that he wants. Not what I'm going to interject like, I know the Bible says that I should worship in such a way, but there's this, there's this one song that I really like because it's got a really great hook, and I love the chord progression, and it gives me goosebumps every time I hear it. Ooh. Is that unauthorized fire? I want you to know that I'm being convicted as I'm speaking here. As a worship leader who's been... Um, doing so for, for many, many years, I know there have been times where I will admit I picked a song because I loved the way it sounded and the way it made me feel. And I forgot that we got to be pointing people towards Christ in our times of worship. We need to be making sure that these songs are grounded in Scripture when we worship. Did I do that or did I miss the mark? This is an opportunity when we read these to take a step back and think about how are we approaching worship, not just in song on Sunday mornings, but individually, every day. The next one that we can talk about, uh, principle number three, God is a God of order, so we worship him accordingly. Um, we see uh, the story is actually in two places, 2 Samuel 6 and 1 Chronicles 13 and 15. Um, 
But it's the story of King David when the Ark of the Covenant was recovered from the Philistines and he's bringing it back to Jerusalem. I'm actually going to read from uh, Chronicles on this one. So this is First Chronicles 13. So David assembled the Israelites to bring the Ark of God from Kiriath Jearim. I probably said that wrong, but the point is bringing it from another place to Jerusalem. David and all the Israelites with him went to uh, Bala of Judah to bring up from there the Ark of the God the Lord, who is enthroned between the cherubim, the ark that is called by name. They moved the ark of God from Abinadab's house on a new cart with Uzzah and, I almost said Ohio, Ahio, guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all of their might before God, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. Now, it sounds like David and all the Israelites were actually trying to do principle number one, giving God 100%, because it says that they were celebrating with all their might. But I think they forgot principle number two, honoring God with worship that he wants and kind of respecting God's order, because if you remember from... God giving to Moses, here are my instructions. He gave very specific instructions on how the ark was to be carried. He didn't say put it in a cart. When they came to the threshing floor of Kaidan, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. I tried to think of a great example, uh, like a real-life example. As a musician, I could only imagine if I learned that um, Klaus Badelt was going to be coming to uh, Wilmington and wanted to have dinner with me and give him a tour. Or John Williams. I love John Williams. Every single Steven Spielberg movie that has John Williams doing the score is just a winner. The content of the movie could be lame, but the music, ah, love it. Or as a worship leader, if Matt Redman himself said, I want to hang out with you. Take me on a tour of Wilmington. I want to have dinner with you. I'm not going to serve him cold pizza on paper plates. I'm going to find out what he likes to eat, and I'm going to serve it on the fine china. Because here's somebody, here are people who I respect, people who maybe I want to emulate. And then after we have eaten, I'm certainly not going to uh, grab a clapped-out rusty pickup truck and say, here, hop in the bed, I'm going to take you around Wilmington. Be careful on the bumps. There's a lot of them. That's kind of what David did here, isn't it? He said, we're bringing the ark and we're going to worship, but we forgot about some pretty important instructions and some pretty important ways that we are supposed to worship. 
Now, with that being said, we can skip forward to First uh, Chronicles 15, or a little bit further ahead in Second Samuel 6, and King David's going to do this again. This time, he did it the right way. He gathered the priests. He used the poles that he was supposed to use. They carried the ark as God had commanded. And this was even more joyful. It says that there were 30,000 of them. (laughs) With shouts, the sounding of ram's horns and trumpets and cymbals, the playing of lyres and harps. This was the biggest worship service. In fact, there was an entire psalm that David wrote I'm not going to read it because it is lengthy, but it's in 1 Chronicles 16, verses 8 through 36. And it's all about worshiping because God is worthy. It's all about giving him praise because he is the one to whom praise is due. Finally, we're going to look at Acts 5 and our fourth principle, and that is worship in truth. And here we see um, who used to be a power couple in the church by the names of Ananias and Sapphira. And the gist of this story is that um, the two of them sold a piece of property and with their full knowledge kept back a part of that money for themselves and then brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet and lied to the apostles that this was everything. Kind of lied to the Holy Spirit saying, hey, we're giving you everything, but actually we've held back some for ourselves. Because they wanted to get something out of it. They wanted to have, they wanted to approach this time of worship and expecting personal gain. And you know, the, Lord, the word does say to come to the Lord expecting, expecting the goodness of his riches of mercy and grace. And when we approach worship first with truth, as the Holy Spirit blesses those times of worship, yes, our hearts can be ministered to. Praise God. Just so long as we remember that we are ministering to his heart first, that it is a sacrifice of praise first before there is the gift of grace Um, There was a sacrifice on the cross that had to come before the gift of salvation and forgiveness. I'm not going to go into the rest of that story because yet again, um, two people died. But let's look at the better example, the best example the example of what it looks like when you have a lifetime dedicated to worship. And I'm actually going to call the uh, um, worship team uh, up at this time as we're kind of wrapping up here. But in Luke 2, we see a story about a guy by the name of Simeon. It says in verse 25, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout, He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, 
and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in a child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now, we don't know how long it was between the Holy Spirit revealing to Simeon that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. We don't know how long it was between that and when he was moved by the Spirit when he went into the temple courts. It could have been the same day. It could have been years. But there is something that I do want to call out here, and that's the words righteous and just. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. The words righteous and just are used to translate the Hebrew yashar, upright, and tzaddik, just. In these words, only one idea applies. The righteous or just man is so called because he is right with God, and he is right with God because he has observed all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. The Old Testament righteous man was not sinless. Only Jesus was sinless. But he understood the assignment. Even despite his sin nature, we can see that he had given God 100% because God's worthy. He strove to always honor God with worship that he wants. He respected God's order in embracing the truth in his worship. Now, it was because of that, but, uh, possibly, it doesn't say that exactly, but we can see that here is somebody who gave his 100%, paid the full $10, worshiped in spirit and truth, kind of gave to the Lord himself as that living sacrifice to say, my ways are nothing compared to God's ways. Then he was blessed with a word of knowledge from, from the Holy Spirit. And that word came to fruition when he moved in accordance to the Spirit. We can see a great progression in something that we should be emulating, and that is being obedient even when we don't feel like it, being devout because God has called it, and then being able to see the move of the Spirit. I can think back personally to a time in the mid-90s when there was this outpouring of the Spirit here in this sanctuary, and I remember being slain in the Spirit. Yes, slain in the Spirit right there next to pew number six. 
and I was being prayed over for what I look back on as being a rather mundane thing, but I'll never forget, and I think I shared this before, um, Teal, I can never forget a gentleman by the name of Aldemers who is continuing to serve uh, in, uh, in, in churches here in, in Delaware, who looked at me in the eyes and said, you're going to be a preacher one day. Now, the spiritually mature would have said, okay, I'm going to test that against Scripture. All right, Scripture says that we are a you know, holy um, priesthood, that uh, we have all gifts that are given by the Holy Spirit as he needs. To some he calls teachers, to some he calls healers, to some he calls preachers. So I could test that word and say, okay, that aligns with what the Bible says. I could also go back to the words here and I could follow Simeon's example and taking action on those words and saying, okay, God, if you're calling me to be a preacher, what are my next steps? What am I supposed to do next? Instead, 12-year-old me, spiritually immature, believing in Christ, of course, but spiritually immature and undiscipled, undisciplined, said, cool, I'm going to be a preacher someday. I can sit back and relax and just eh, be 12-year-old me. I like to sit back and relax and be 12-year-old me. Um, But the point is, is that I missed the mark on the being a living sacrifice and worshiping in spirit and truth. And I was just like, you know what? It's so easy to say, Jesus, take the wheel. I'm going to sit back and relax and enjoy the ride. Hmm. By God's power and his might and by the leading of his Holy Spirit, he compels us to act. So we act. That Psalm 139, 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The purpose of this message was not to inflict any kind of fear but to serve as a reminder, and and if the Holy Spirit so lovingly has convicted you as he's convicted me over the last several months, as I've allowed him, or if you've allowed him to know your heart, maybe this is the time, the ringing in your ear, to come forward and receive prayer, 